Let's, uh, let's open up God's Word together, which is always a wonderful thing to do. We're going to be heading to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. And just while you uh, turn there, I'll pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, we thank you for this privilege of opening up your Word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the way that it nourishes and feeds our souls. We thank you that it is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, come and breathe life upon your word as it is proclaimed. Let it settle in our hearts. Let it settle on good soil. Just uh, bring your touch, I pray, to the words that I speak, that you would lead me. I pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you ever find it frustrating or interesting at how quickly and easily the human heart can move from a place of wonder and amazement to a place where things just become a little bit common or familiar? Does anyone else find that interesting or frustrating? Maybe it's just me. I can remember many years ago when Google became a thing. Does anyone else remember that time? And I remember I was in uh, maybe year six, I think, and we had this assignment to do, a group assignment, me and a friend of mine at school. And the librarian gave us this information sheet on a web search engine called Google. It was the first time I'd heard of it. And as I was reading through it, I was like, so wait, we can just type in anything we want and it just brings up all these answers and brings up all this information. Like, yeah, that's how it works. I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is life-changing. This is incredible. No longer looking through encyclopedias and books. It was just a click of a button, and then you had to wait about two minutes while the, while the, uh, the results loaded. But it was this amazement and wonder at, this is incredible. Whereas, fast forward 25 years or so, and it's just like, oh, what's that thing? You just quickly search on Google. It's like, oh, great. There you go. Thanks, Google. You lose that sense of wonder and amazement so quickly. Or perhaps it's like, you know, at Christmas time. When you give a gift or you receive a gift, perhaps kids open a gift and it's opened with wonder and glee and amazement and joy, and then just a month or so down the track, it's just gathering dust on the shelf. That initial wonder and amazement has given way to, oh, it's just a bit common or familiar. We're called to be, I believe, as followers of Jesus, people of wonder, not those for whom things of wonder become common or familiar. And there are many phrases that get thrown around at this time of year, phrases full of wonder that should cause our hearts to respond in wonder and amazement. We sing them in our Christmas carols. We see them on Christmas displays as we brave the multitudes at the shops, perhaps. We read them on Christmas cards, words like peace on earth and joy to the world and hope, glory to God, all these incredible things. And each of these phrases carries great meaning, significance, and power. But if we're not careful, they can become common. We can become familiar with the Christmas story. But may the Christmas story, may the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ never become familiar or common to us. So what I've had on my heart this morning is to focus on a particular phrase, a simple word and its meaning, a word that is central to 
the Christmas narrative. It's central to the gospel. It's central to our lives of faith. And this word and its meaning holds such significance for each of us here and indeed for all of mankind. The words we sing, the words that we sing on Christmas, uh, see on Christmas cards, and it's this, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's read Matthew chapter 1, the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. So Matthew makes clear that the narrative around the birth of Jesus, the coming of our Savior, was the fulfillment of what had been prophesied many hundreds of years before. And the prophetic reference to Emmanuel is, is of course, out of Isaiah chapter 7, in Isaiah chapter 8, there's a few little verses there. But it speaks, as Matthew proclaims, this is the fulfillment. It speaks of Christ's coming being carefully planned, carefully revealed, and carefully outworked by God. Even though there was no fanfare, it happened in the most humble of circumstances, there was nothing common, boring, or familiar about this incredible event. It's wondrous. It's amazing. And so to delve a little bit further into into context here, what Matthew is writing about, not just the prophetic utterance and Matthew's claim that the birth of Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of this prophecy. But let's think for a moment about the significance of this reality for God's people. At the time all this took place, they were living under oppressive rule. Roman occupation in the land. Things weren't easy. Things perhaps weren't what they once once hoped for. Life now looked like, instead of uh, as it should be or as it was desired to be, it perhaps seemed a bit of a distant pipe dream, that hope and expectation of good. Not only that, but their experience was of a prolonged Season, some 400 years, in fact, of God's silence. Both of the prophetic voice, but also of God speaking and leading and making himself known. Imagine that, 1623 until now, nothing from, from God. No, no prophetic voice, nothing. 400 years, that is several generations, that is a long time. Aren't you thankful that we're blessed to live in a time where God speaks by his word, by the Holy Spirit, revealing, leading. But for, all God, for God's people all the way back then, there was this place that they were in that was a very different picture. And I imagine that they would have been in this place of, God, where are you? God, where are you? Have you ever felt in that kind of place? 
Lord, where are you? What are you doing, Lord? What are you, what are you saying? Anything? Anything at all? Have you ever found yourself in that kind of place? God, where are you? I must admit I've heard Andrew ask this question on numerous occasions on the squash court recently. (laughs) As he endures one humbling defeat after another. I just had to bring a bit of truth back to the pulpit here around what actually happens on the squash court. In all seriousness, seriousness, though, this is the context and the place that I'm sure that God's people were in. God, where are you? But in all this, God was at work setting the stage for his coming. So what does Emmanuel mean for us today? When we sing Jesus, our Emmanuel, O come, O come, Emmanuel, when we read the Christmas cards, when we see this message written, what is its, its significance for us today? Why should we be careful to not just gloss over or become overly familiar with this word and this reality, but instead have renewed wonder in our hearts? Well, ultimately, it answers the question, God, where are you? With clarity and with assurance, I'm right there with you. I'm right here with you. Emmanuel God with us. So just a couple of things I want to bring out and encourage us in this morning. First of all, Emmanuel reveals a God of relationship. A God who is not far off. Uh, As someone who enjoys attempting to write songs, I love and appreciate good songwriting. I love uh, coming across lyrics or melodies that that stir my heart, that grab my attention, that... uh, get me thinking or reveal truth or express something that is worth singing. And we, we sing a song here from time to time. It's called Son of Suffering. And the second verse of that song grabs my attention every time. These are the lyrics. It says, Some imagine you are distant and removed, but you chased us down in merciful pursuit. To the sinner you were grace, and the broken you embraced. And in the end, the proof is in your wounds. I love that. It's a beautiful picture of what God is like. Jesus, our Emmanuel, reveals a God who is not distant or removed. He's not far off and indifferent, despite what many may imagine or think through the various lenses that shape and form our views and our perspectives. Tim Keller said this, that the purpose of the incarnation, Jesus Our Emmanuel, God with us, the purpose of the incarnation is that we would have relationship with him. And all through scripture, we see a God who desires relationship, whose heart is to be in the midst of his people. And time doesn't permit us really this morning to study in depth the Old Testament narrative regarding this. But but if we go all the way back to Genesis, in the garden, we see a picture of the Lord who would walk with his people in the cool of the evening. And even when Adam and Eve had sinned, even when they'd given into temptation, even when they'd disobeyed the Lord, even when they'd rebelled against the Lord's expressed word and will with regards to the tree, still he came to seek them out. 
There's this beautiful picture in, in Genesis 3, and it's tragic in one sense, but it also reveals something of the nature of God, where he's coming, and they've hidden away, and he says, where are you? Where are you? And it's important to note that it was the humans, it was Adam and Eve, they were the ones who had distanced themselves from God. They were the ones who were hiding away. They were the ones who had removed themselves from his presence, not the Lord. He knew what had happened. He knew the mess that they'd got themselves into, and still he came to find them and to say, where are you? When we consider the Christmas narrative that Jesus would come as the one who would save his people from their sins, the Lord knew. He knew the mess. He knew the darkness. He knew the depravity of humanity, and he came. Still he came to seek and save, to rescue and redeem. He came to dwell with us, his people. Though sin had brought separation, the great divide between God and mankind, God still desired a way to make it happen, to dwell in the midst of his people. But as we read through the Old Testament, there was a degree of separation so that the Lord didn't kill his people with his holiness, with his majesty, with his power. Anyone, anytime anyone drew near to him in the Old Testament, there was a degree of, of, of awe and terror. But there were these types and shadows and prophetic pictures, if you like, pointing us towards Jesus. We see the tent of meeting. We see the tabernacle, which represented the place of his presence, his dwelling. And that particular uh, thing was placed in the middle of the camp, right there dwelling in the midst of his people. We read in John 1, 23, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelling among us. Or as, they built, as Solomon built the temple, the temple that was rebuilt, it was this holy of holies, the place where his presence resided. There was the curtain that stood in front of that holies of holies that represented the divide between sinful man and the holy God, that only the, holy, uh, sorry, only the high priest could enter in at certain times. And we know that this dividing curtain was torn in two through Jesus and his work on the cross. In Jesus' coming, I want to put to us this morning, it's the loudest proclamation of all that God is a God of relationship, desiring to be with, desiring to draw near and desiring relationship with his people. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, we read this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is he who came to dwell with man. This is he who took on flesh to reveal who God is and what he is like. God has spoken to us by his Son, the one promised, the one prophesied about, the one who is Emmanuel, our God with us. You know, when we speak about, when we speak, when we speak about something, that means we convey something, doesn't it? We express something. We convey something. We proclaim. We reveal something. Well, God has spoken, as we've read in Hebrews 1, to convey, to express, to reveal, and to proclaim his great love. 
that he is not far off or distant, that he desires to be in the midst of his people and in relationship with us, even in the midst of the mess. And that he would stop at nothing to do so. In Romans 8, we read that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Are our hearts full of wonder at this reality? That a holy God would desire and make way for relationship with us. As we approach Christmas, as we sing the words, as we hear the messages, let's remember that Emmanuel reveals a God of relationship and his invitation for relationship is available to us all, to all. Second thing this morning, Emmanuel also reveals a God of reconciliation. This is another aspect of Emmanuel, our God, with us. That in Christ's coming and in his death and resurrection, the barrier between man and God has been removed. <clears throat> we sing the carol, Hark the Herald. It's one of my favorite carols, wonderful melody. But we, we read, uh, sing a couple of lines in that, don't we? It says, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. There's another line that that stands out to me. It says, God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. This is a picture, again, of what Emmanuel, Christ coming, God with us reveals. God and sinners reconciled. In Jesus, our Emmanuel, we see him bridging that divide, bringing God and man together. And this is indeed what reconciliation means. Removing and restoring any estrangement, any hostility, any strife, and bringing back together so that there is a way forward and peace. This is what it says in Colossians chapter 1. We read this this morning just in the the pre-service prayer. Catherine started our time together with this. Colossians 1.19, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Hostility, doing evil, alienated, yet being reconciled, being brought back, that divide being bridged. Jesus is known, prophesied in Isaiah 9, what I read out earlier in the service, as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Yes, he's the one who brings peace. Absolutely. But it's not just that in Jesus we'd no longer have any trouble or turmoil, or strife, or that life would just be easy. He brings peace in the midst of the mess and in the midst of the storms, of course. But he is the one who enables us, as the Prince of Peace, to have peace with God. To have peace with God, which is what every man, woman, and child on earth needs above all else. Emmanuel reveals that God would take us, a sinful people, 
For we've read in Matthew 1, he would come to save his people from their sins. That's the, that's the issue there. God would take us as sinful people into covenant and communion with himself. Are our hearts full of wonder at this? That we're no longer his enemies, that we're no longer at enmity, but we're reconciled through Jesus. Let that truth not become common or familiar to us. That we've been reconciled from death to life, from darkness to light, from sin and brokenness to forgiveness and hope. Emmanuel reveals a God of reconciliation and that gift is on offer for us all. It's on the table for us this morning. Finally this morning, Emmanuel reveals a God we can rely on. A God of relationship, a God of reconciliation and one we can rely on. And there are two aspects of this. Two aspects of this I want to just delve into a little bit. That Emmanuel, our God with us, means hope for the here and now. For hope did appear. Christ has come. But it also means hope for the future. Hope for the then and there. For Christ, for hope will appear. Christ will return. Emmanuel means that there is hope we can rely on for our present circumstances. That in this proclamation of Jesus... In Matthew 1 that we've read this morning, notice how it doesn't say, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God who's nearby. It doesn't say his name Emmanuel, which means God who checks up on us every now and then. No, it's Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel means the here and now present reality of the reality of his presence with us. In the midst of the uncertainty, Emmanuel, God with us, is the one that we can rely upon. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, we read, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's the promise for us to rely on and grab hold of this morning. Because God is with us, we can rely on him in the place of pain and despair. In the mountaintop seasons when the world's all as it should be. In the wilderness season when things feel barren and nothing is growing and in every other season in between. I can remember uh, when I was about 12 years old, one of the, the first times in my life where I really experienced the reality of the Emmanuel God with me presence of Jesus. And uh, it was a time when... um, well, my, my grandfather had passed away suddenly and, and, and quite tragically as well. And uh, I can remember, obviously, being pretty devastated about that as a 12-year-old boy. And my grandmother had come to live with us for a little while while things were getting sorted out. And I was, I think, I gave up my room for her, but I was on the mattress in the study or something like that. And I remember, obviously, that that feeling of sadness and fear and uncertainty and what was going to happen and all these things going through my mind. And I can remember that one night lying, I still remember it like it was yesterday, that lying on that mattress at night, wondering what was going on, and I've, I sensed the Lord impress upon my heart as clearly as I've ever heard him to that point and possibly since as well. Read Psalm 121. Read Psalm 121. I didn't know what it said at that point, but I recognized that, that that was the voice of the Lord. That was God with me, leading me, 
the, the present reality of his presence, right, with me. So I opened up Psalm 121, and it, it blew me away because it says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will neither slumber nor sleep. It talks about him being the shade at your right hand. The sun won't harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord watching over you and keeping you for now and forevermore. So I read these words as a 12-year-old boy. And in this time of uncertainty and fear in my own heart and life, it revealed the answer to that question, God, where are you? What it revealed was a God who is near, a God who could see and know where I was at. It, was, it revealed a God who desired relationship. And, you know, what it revealed was that if he could speak that word into my heart through his word that spoke directly into my circumstances, into the very things that I was feeling worried and anxious and in turmoil about, well, then that made me realize he was the one that I could trust and rely upon and hold on to. He is Emmanuel, our hope for our present circumstances, the here and now. But Jesus, our Emmanuel, is the one that we can also rely on for the future, for what is to come. He is our future hope, come what may, and of course, for the glorious reality of eternity and of his returning, whichever comes first for us, right? But, you know, as we... As we try and grasp this, as we try and approach this with fresh wonder, Jesus, our Emmanuel, you know, there's this tension, isn't there? The reality of Emmanuel, God with us, and the hope that that brings for our present circumstances. Because our hope in Christ is not just for eternity, it's for here and now as well. But there's also this tension, for we realize that there will be a day when Jesus will make all things new where every question will be resolved, where every longing will be fulfilled, where every tear will be wiped away, where we no longer just see in part. That is something that we can hold on to. Tim Keller says this, this claim that Jesus is God with us gives us the greatest possible hope. Why? Because it means this world is not all there is. It means there is life and love after death and evil and suffering will one day end. That is our hope, both for here and now, the present reality, the present circumstances, to be able to rely upon the Lord and hold on to him. But there is also a hope that we can look to and have expectation for, for the future. At the start of Matthew's Gospel, where we've read this morning, he brings us this proclamation of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. But here at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28 verse 20, important words, the last recorded words in this gospel anyway of Jesus before he ascended to heaven, to the Father's side. This is what Jesus said. He said, behold, take note of this, pay attention to this, in other words, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're still here, so we're still in this age, obviously. So this promise still remains. If God went to such lengths to dwell with his people, to draw near to his people, and then for Jesus, our Emmanuel, to promise that he would be with us to the very end 
of the age, will he not also continue to be there walking with us for the journey, come what may? I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly amazing and incredibly comforting. One more scripture. Jude 24. One of my favorite uh, verses in the New Testament. I've got many, so I probably say that a lot. It says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Isn't that amazing? Just leave it there. But there's this picture of this future hope that we have of being presented blameless before God. And the righteousness that is ours in Christ. What a great joy that will be. But here's the reality and the promise that we can hold on to and rely upon for here and now, for tomorrow, for the next day, for 2024, for 2034, whatever it is. Here's the reality, that he will keep us from stumbling. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who keeps us from stumbling. That implies walking closely. That implies proximity. God with us. A number of years ago, just after Steph and I got engaged, we were celebrating Christmas at her family home with her side of the family. And we were playing a game of backyard cricket with the siblings. And her grandmother wanted to come and join us. She's no longer alive. She's a wonderful woman full of life and zest. And she came and, and there was a few that were like, no, don't come and join us. Like, not that we didn't want her there, but we were like, we don't want you to fall or hurt yourself. She came, she wouldn't have a bar of it. She wanted to have a bat. So she came and grabbed the bat. And I was bowling. And I was like, I did like the most gentle, easiest bowl that I could. It's like the new family that I'm about to be welcomed into. And as she was taking, preparing to take the swing, she stepped back. And there was a paver that was jutting out just a little bit too far. And it was like... You know, you know, you can see what's going to happen, and it goes into slow-mo. And you're like, no. <laughs> and she stepped back and tripped on this paver that was jutting out, and she fell. She stumbled, and she fell, and, and, and actually hurt herself, which wasn't great. And I felt terrible. I'm like, oh. This is like, anyway. I still managed to uh, marry Steph, and it's all, all been forgiven. But I thought about that this week, because... I saw it happening, and I wanted to help, but I couldn't stop her from stumbling because I was too far away, unfortunately. But you know, we have one who is with us who will keep us from stumbling. He's not far off or too far away. He's there to, to catch us, to bear us up when the unexpected pavers jut out and trip us up, when the curveball of life comes, or keep coming, or just stay. He's there to keep us from stumbling. Around this time of year, there there are a number of Christmas movies that gain a bit of popularity, mostly B-grade Christmas films that seem to have developed a cult following for some strange reason. But some of the names are interesting. 
Some of them are like a Merry Christmas wish, falling for Christmas, a Christmas miracle for Daisy. I mean, come on. Like, can't you just come up with something more creative? They sound pretty lame and daggy, and the plot, I must admit, would appear to back up that claim. But if we think about, for a moment, putting all that aside, a Christmas miracle, if we think about that for a moment, there's something in that for us this morning. Because the true miracle of Christmas is not found in all the trappings. The miracle of the Christmas ham coming out of the oven perfectly. It's not found in the, the perfect, you know, Instagram-worthy life. It's not found in the, a great holiday break. It's not found in the bonus that comes through at just the right time. The true miracle of Christmas <clears throat> is in the reality of Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. May we know the reality of Emmanuel, not just as a nice message on a card, not just as a a lyric that we sing and kind of gloss over from the screen, but in all its wonder and significance in our lives today. Because it reveals one who has stopped at nothing to ensure relationship and draw near to his people. It reveals one who has reconciled us to himself through the blood shed on the cross. And it reveals one who can be relied upon with hope for the here and now and hope for the then and there, for eternity, for eternity. Amen.